It's August 18, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Welcome. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. This week, we're going to talk about mono and oligoarthritis and if there is a big difference or not in kids with JIA. Got a lot of interesting things this week. Um, I want to go over something. We talked a lot about steroids, especially with the Gloria trial, a follow-up to the Gloria trial. Um, you know, do steroids make a difference? This is a fairly large analysis appeared this week in Annals of Internal Medicine, um, where uh, they pulled the data from five RCTs, fairly large. Um, patients follow for over two years and basically came up with the line that uh, low-dose steroids, uh, less than 7.5 milligrams per day of prednisone, um, can increase weight, but does not increase blood pressure. I don't think that's an earth-shattering statement, but I think it's an important statement. You know, weight gain is a big problem in patients who are inactive and hurting. Um, it adds to their pain. It adds to their problems. It adds to their comorbidities. And again, another reason maybe to avoid steroids. What do you do in sarcoidosis? Do you treat sarcoidosis or not? I think rheumatologists really should be taking ownership of sarcoidosis. I think that there aren't enough pulmonologists who are really interested in it to be the experts. And by the way, all the drugs that are used to manage sarcoid, you're the expert at. So why shouldn't you manage this other multi-system disease that has a pulmonary onset, if not prominent course? There's a report in a cardiology journal this week about the value of TNF inhibition in patients with cardiac sarcoid. It is my belief, aside from this report, that TNF inhibitors really don't work in pulmonary sarcoid nor in joint sarcoid. Um, variable reports. However, there is a lot of anecdotal single center, small cohorts saying that TNF inhibitors do work in sort of organ failure sarcoid, mainly eyes. Um, I'm not convinced about lung. And this was reports about cardiac. So, as you can imagine, how many cardiac sarcoid patients do you have? Well, in this study, they had 31 treated with either uh, infliximab or adalimumab. That accounted for 28 of the cases. Um, but in, they showed in this uncontrolled, you know, bias report, they showed that steroid doses dropped from a mean of 19 milligrams to 7.7. They showed that PET scan signals decrease significantly on TNF inhibitors. And out of the 31 patients treated with TNF inhibitors, only four required subsequent readmission for a cardiovascular reason. Suggesting that again, with earth, you know, uh, earth-shaking, organ-threatening sarcoid, TNF inhibitors may be the way to go. IL-23 being used in a lot of things, surprisingly doesn't work in ankylosing spondylitis. Um, although there are people working fervently to truly look at that. Um, in this report, looked at tiltrakizumab um, being studying 100 patients, 101 patients with ankylosing spondylitis placebo or tiltrakizumab standard doses, The um, no difference between tiltrakizumab and placebo. Unfortunately, <laughs> the outcomes are a head-scratcher. The primary endpoint here was an ASAS-20, um, 74% in tiltrakizumab and 80% in placebo. What? 
So there's something not quite right there, and I don't know that this closes the coffin on IL-23 use in spondyloarthritis, but right now it's not looking good. Um, Myositis-associated ILD um, happens worldwide. Uh, the ILD is found in anywhere from about 20 to 50%, probably closer to 25% from most countries, and this particular analysis looked at uh, Asia, uh, Europe, and United States. They found clinical associations with mainly with the presence of anti-PL7, anti-PL12 um, antibodies being uh, more ILD in those than even with Joe. And you know, of course, uh, lung involvement is a part of the antisynthetase syndrome. Um, a lot of lung involvement in MDA5 positive myositis, but as you know, there the picture is a, a very a little bit different, actually a lot different. Rapidly progressive ILD with a high risk of morbidity and mortality. Um, and that being mainly seen in Asian populations and, rep and reports, but it has been seen. I've had a few patients with MDA5, really bad skin disease, really bad um, progressive lung disease, a few deaths, not good. So, yeah, um, ILD is the bad news comorbidity to have in um, especially patients with inflammatory myositis. Uh, I found an interesting article about uh, myelodysplasia associated with rheumatic disease. You know, we see it, right? Question is, is it related or not? A retrospective cohort study looked at a large number of uh, a few thousand um, rheumatic disease patients and found 64 myelodysplasias amongst 55,000 patient years of follow-up. Uh, that's about one case per 1,000 patient year. Lupus had the greatest risk, and it was significantly elevated with a 2.6-fold higher risk for myelodysplastic syndrome if you had lupus. Also, lower hemoglobins, not surprisingly, could be an early marker of such findings. Um, this report I liked about nail-fold capillaroscopy. I, I like to think I can do it using cheap materials like, you know, um, you know a belt buckle, a, a bottle cap, and a, a punched-out eyeglass. I can probably figure out how to do nail-fold capillaroscopy. Well, this is sort of expensive video nail-fold capillaroscopy done in almost 1,400 patients in a scleroderma registry. They classified the capillaroscopy findings as either being uh, early, active, or late. And it's the late designation that they're really talking about in this report. The late pattern was seen in 40% of their overall patients and significantly associated with twofold greater risk of diffuse scleroderma of ILD, a 30% increase, a renal crisis, an odds ratio of 3.46, digital ulcers, 1.29, and topoisomerase 1 antibodies, 1.39 odds ratio. The, the point here is that you're not surprised. I mean, impressive nail fold caparoscopy findings associated with diffuse disease, bad disease, you know, um, other autobodies. I'm not really surprised, but it's really the designation of these late findings, which I can't show you on a podcast, but you should look up, and they're different. So the usual dilated loops and some avascular areas um, and some hemorrhages, that's not necessarily a late finding. That's actually more of, a, of a, an active finding and sometimes an early finding. The late is when the vessels have been destroyed and you have much wider areas of avascularity. So the definition is 
irregular enlargement of capillaries, few or absent giant capillaries and microhemorrhages, severe loss of capillaries with large avascular areas and disorganization of normal capillary array with ramified or bushy capillaries. So it's basically in stage with a, a meager attempt to repair those capillaries. This is a bad finding um, and can be done with pretty simple um, Utilities. Actually, what I really use is a. When I bought it ten years ago, twelve years ago, was a six dollar um, kid little microscope with a ten x magnifier on it. That and some KY jelly, and I'm doing just as good as I did when I had a four thousand dollar video um, Kepler microscope um, that geologists use. Actually, all right. Getting on to opioids, we can't go too long without talking about opioids. A UK study looked at 1.3 million patients with rheumatic disease and looked at opioid use from 2006 um, up to present day. They, sh they showed actually a steady increase um, up to 2019. Actually, they showed an increase and then around 2018, I think it, it plateaued. And when you hit the pandemic, it actually fell a little bit. The point that they're making in this report is that the greatest increase in opioid use was surprisingly to me, fibromyalgia. Um, so in fibromyalgia, it rose from 3.4 per 10,000 uh, population um, or per 10,000 to 8.7 in 2019 and then fell to 5.9 in 2021. So there was less overall opioid use during the pandemic and that's kind of encouraging. That was across the board for the rheumatic diseases, but still, uh, Opioid use in fibromyalgia, I don't think it's a good idea, and I think there are plenty of patients who need opioids. Think about that. The journal Pediatric Rheumatology had a nice comparison of um, research that I did when I was like a second-year fellow. I did this research at UT Southwestern, Texas Scottish Rite Hospital, Dr. Chester Fink, you know, one of my early pediatric rheumatology JIA gurus. My research project was to compare outcomes in patients with oligoarthritis and JIA. So they had oligoarticular onset, what happened to them? What I basically showed was one joint did better than two, two joints did better than three, three joints did better than four, four joints was basically going to be polyarticular and bad news. This particular study is a cohort study of 346 patients with oligoarticular disease. Based on the onset, um, 196, so a little more than half, had a monarticular onset, and about 60% of those had a persistent monarticular um, disease. Uh, monarticular one joint. And again, in JIA world, oligoarticular means one to four joints, okay? Um, and five would be polyarticular, okay? Um, so in this study, what they found was that if you had monarticular disease, you were more likely to have a later onset, less females, more hypermobility, 20% um, more, less uveitis, less ANA positivity, better long-term outcome. That's what we saw in our Texas study back in the 80s, um, better long-term outcome with four, fewer joints, less ANA positivity. I don't know about the uveitis. I don't remember that from that research. Um, but I think this is important. If you have a JIA patient, I want to see one joint, maybe two. If I'm seeing three and four, I'm going, uh-oh, they have a high chance of progressing to polys. And then it's the, you know, the all bets are off on what's going to happen as far as risk in, in the future.
A single center cohort showed that amongst uh, their systemic JIA patients, 38, 10% had MAS. There was only one who had recurrent MAS. That's good news. Um, they were mostly males. Uh, average age was about eight years old. Um, MAS patients had less arthritis, more rash, um, much more hepatosplenomegaly, and more serositis. Again, this goes all goes along with really bad disease associated with MAS. Um, Journal of Clinical Investigation had a novel report about um, a marker I'm not really familiar with. It's called HIF, hypoxia-inducible factor. It's elaborated by cells um, in response to uh, tissue hypoxia and inflammation. Um, uh, both the skin and the joint express high amounts of HIF in lupus patients with active disease, and HIF inhibition improves skin uh, and systemic manifestations and decreases T-cell cytotoxic activity. So this, these findings are especially um, uh, worrisome, I think, when you have um, uh, both skin and joint, and the fact that um, they're both there, I think, I don't know, is it something we should look at? I, I, I'm, the fact that it's in GCI kind of means it's, it's too early to tell. It's not yet prime time. But the fact that it's in journal clinical investigation leads me to believe we should be watching this. Uh, lastly, we have two more reports. Um, the lung is involved in preclinical RA. You may know that. You may know the work of Mike Holers and whatnot that, who did bronchoalveolar lavage uh, in ACPA positive individuals and found uh, lots of immune activity in the lung. And these are people who didn't yet have RA. They were just like relatives of people who were at-risk individuals. Um, in this study, they did, again, bronchoalveolar lavage. This is not the, the Denver group. Um, and... Um, and these were 12 untreated at-risk, uh, a fewer early RA, and they basically were found to have, they took basically the, the, the cells out. They did sort of single cell analyses. They found uh, a lot of abnormalities, especially in ACPA-positive individuals, but they know that ACPA is actually being made in the joint. And I mean, everything I'm looking at here, um, there are more um, activated or active B cells in ACPA positive individuals compared to ACPA negative individuals. Memory and double negative B cells were uh, prominent in all groups, but um, again, B cell activity leading to a lot of T cell uh, activity and inflammation. You know, I think that this is underscoring the fact that it may well be that the site of first insult in early RA or preclinical RA may be in the lungs going along with smoking going along with microbiome and diet and dentition and et cetera. Lastly, I don't know if you saw our report this week on the um, adalimumab biosimilars. I called it the adalimumab biosimilar glut. If you consider the original Humira as the original adalimumab, there's now nine others for a total of 10 adalimumabs that are now in play in the marketplace in the United States. Their names if I can pronounce them, um, I can do their generic names. It's Adalimumab and four silly letters after that. <clears throat> FDA nomenclature, I'm not sure what that's all about. But their trade names, Amjavita, Idacio, Julio, not a channel, a drug. Not your best friend, a drug. Cytelzo, Hadlima, Hadlima, Hiramaz, Euphlima, Euphlima, Eusimri, and Albrelata. Um, these are bands coming to um, 
the local pub where you live. Um, the question is, how are you going to use them? You know, the Adelman market, as dictated by um, the originator, was in 2022 nearly a $22 billion market. Uh, thus far in 2023, Humira sales are down 35% or so, and they're being taken up by, I would assume, these drugs. Each of these drugs is vying for one, three, four, five percent of market share. And how's that going to change? It's going to get competitive. The pricing, uh, we, I explained the pricing structure, which is really screwy, if you ask me. Um, interchangeability and, um, you know, how the PBMs are continue to be bad players in this equation. So you might want to look at that. Lastly, I'll refer you to, it's a promotional ad. I'm, I actually am on another podcast. Um, the name of the podcast is the Miracle Larry Podcast. If you're at Room Now Live, you would have seen my friend uh, Miracle Larry talking about his brush with death um, during COVID. It's a sort of incredibly impressive story. We started doing a podcast, Larry and I, and um, the last few episodes, I got to say, I thought were really, really good. You can find the Miracle Larry Podcast, A, on your favorite podcast channel, B, on YouTube. You got to look for it. There's actually a video of Larry and I and guests that we have. Uh, and lastly, I guess you can look at the Miracle Larry website. So consider that. Tell your friends and family. We'll talk next week. Take care.